We feel very blessed to worship with you here again at Bethel Church, and we appreciate your Christian hospitality, your pastor's kind invitation. We feel that in a very real sense, we're home when we're here. I know Lori was a member here for several years, and uh, I found asylum here for about two years, about uh, a decade ago. I told Brother Lawrence it was the first time in over 30 years of ordained ministry that I'd had a pastor, and certainly appreciated that and enjoyed it, and uh, appreciated the church's love to us and your encouragement from that day forward. Certainly enjoyed Brother Josh's message from Acts chapter 20, Paul's address to the elders at Ephesus, his farewell address. You know, that's the biblical model of seminary training, a father in the ministry addressing other elders. The Paul Timothy sort of apprenticeship model, he loved them, these other preachers at Ephesus, and Paul is very vulnerable with them in Acts chapter 20. He's uh, very personal. He uh, is intimate as he bears his soul to them. In fact, they weep on his neck because he says that I will see that you will see my face no more. And my what love, genuine love there is in the fellowship of the church between brethren. It's not just a business relationship, is it? And I'm thankful to see that perpetuated even in such a fast-paced and impersonal world like we live in today. I'm glad to see churches still call each other brother and sister, hug each other's neck, shake each other's hand. They're not looking just to get an you know, a leg up so far as some business deal is concerned, but there's a genuine love and care from heart to heart within the church. Uh, so I appreciated Brother Josh's uh, message very much. Certainly solicit your prayers for a few moments tonight. I've opened my Bible this evening to Matthew chapter 16. I'd like to read the beginning in the 13th verse, reading through verse 20. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in the 13th verse. When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I the Son of Man am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, 
and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. This is a very important passage of scripture. It's one, no doubt, that's familiar to many of you. If you've attended Primitive Baptist churches for long, you've probably heard ministers preach on this passage of scripture. On this rock, I will build my church. This is the passage that records Peter's great confession Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And besides his sermon on the day of Pentecost, I think this was Peter's finest hour during his ministry. You know, Peter was frequently pretty impetuous and often spoke before his brain was in gear. (laughs) But he got it right on this occasion didn't he? Thou art the Christ, his great confession. And Jesus' response to Peter, blessed art thou, it's a divine or heavenly benediction. He blesses him. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. It's a very significant portion of scripture. It says that this took place in the coasts of Caesarea Philippi. Now, there's another Caesarea on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. This is not that Caesarea. This is Caesarea Philippi, which was a town about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And it is named Philippi because it was revitalized by Philip the Tetrarch of Galilee. And he honored his father, Herod the Great, when he revitalized the city by erecting a shrine to Caesar. So you have Caesar, Caesarea. You see Caesar in that word Philippi for Philip. And it was a town or city that was well-known for pagan worship, even emperor worship like the worship of Caesar. And it was in this place that Jesus said to his disciples or asked them this question, whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? Now I said this is a strategically important passage and you may know it's also a controversial passage. Our Roman Catholic friends cite this passage particularly to support the view that Peter was the vicar of Christ and that he was the rock on which the church was built. And every pope since that time, they suggest, was Peter's successor. They believe in apostolic succession that they have the same kind of authority and ability to speak ex cathedra like the apostles did. They believe that the papacy is Christ's apostolic office even to this day on the earth, 
in the tradition of Peter. Well, I don't believe that Jesus is telling Peter personally when he says, upon this rock I will build my church, that you're the rock or the foundation on which the church is built. It has been noticed, noted that there are two different Greek words between the word Peter, which is Petros, and the word rock, which is Petros. One is feminine, one is masculine in its gender. And I think what Jesus is saying is, your name is Peter, but I'm the rock on which the church is built. The church is not built on Peter. Now, Peter played a very integral role in the life of the church, but the church is built on Jesus Christ and the revelation that the man Christ Jesus is indeed the divine son of God. That's the foundation of the church. So this passage is significant because it's controversial in Christian circles. I think it's also significant because you'll noted, notice that on this occasion, Jesus gave Simon a new name. He said, blessed art thou Simon Barjona, that means son of Jonah. Simon was his birth name, but he changed his name to Peter. And Simon, of course, means shifting, unstable. But Peter speaks of something that is more, that has greater stability. And Jesus, no doubt, is talking about what he is going to do in Peter's life. He's going to make him into something that he wasn't at that point. And aren't you glad the Lord can make us into better people than we once were? Are you growing in Christian character? Um, that's a hard question for us to answer because you're like the little boy that goes to his family reunion and his aunt says, my Timmy, how you've grown. And he says, well, I've been looking in the mirror every day thinking I'm not growing, I'm not growing. And she said, I'm, I'm, I'm growing. But you see, it's easier for other people to notice than it is for us to notice in ourselves, spiritual growth. But the Lord's sanctifying influence in our life can help us to grow and mature spiritually, become more consistent, more Christ-like in our attitudes and our thinking, in the way we speak, the way we treat other people. And he can take Simons who are unstable and can make them Peters. And that's a very important lesson I think we can glean from this passage. I think the passage is significant furthermore because this episode marks a turning point in Jesus' ministry and his focus. You'll notice in the 21st verse, and I read down to verse 20, look at the 21st verse. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised again the third day. This episode at Caesarea Philippi marks a transition in emphasis, a turning point in which Jesus' focus now is not so much on correcting his disciples, but on 
setting his face like a flint to go to the cross. He's determined. From that time forth, Jesus began to show unto his disciples. He gets more clear. He gets more transparent in telling them that he came to die. Now, of course, they didn't want him to die. In fact, that never entered their mind. They thought that the Messiah would deliver the Jews from Roman oppression. They had a political view of the Messiah. But yet, Jesus says, no, I've come to die. You'll notice that as soon as he tells them that, Peter, the very one he says, blessed art thou, in our reading, takes him aside and scolds Jesus and says, far be it from thee that uh, this shall not be unto thee. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. For thou savourest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Jesus perceives the same diabolical spirit of opposition in his own disciple Peter on this occasion that he had experienced at the hands of the devil when he was tempted in the wilderness. And he says, don't try to stop me from the task for which I've come into this world. Get thee behind me, Satan. He says, you don't understand the things of God. You're thinking like people think. You're thinking like men think. Thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Indeed, my friends, uh, this is a turning point in Jesus' focus. And I would say this passage is significant because besides a, a verse two chapters later, we're in Matthew 16, Matthew 18, verse 17, the word church never appears again in the four Gospels. Jesus says, upon this rock I will build my church. Besides that passage in Matthew 18, this is the only reference in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to the church. And you can check me out. Get your Strong's Concordance, if you're one of the strong. Get your Young's Concordance, if you count yourself among the young. Or get your Cruden's Concordance, if you would classify yourself as one of the crude. And you'll not find the word church in the four Gospels except in this text. Upon this rock, Jesus says, I will build my church. And then that passage in Matthew 18, verse 17. You say, well, the church must not be very important. I suggest, dear friends, that the reference here from the lips of Jesus himself to the church that he will build is especially significant for at least three reasons. First of all, this passage demonstrates the importance that Jesus placed on the church. Does Jesus think the church is important? Well, listen to him. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Whose church is it? His church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus says that the church will live forever. It's perpetual. He believed and taught the perpetuity of the church, and he personally guarantees that it will continue. I believe this passage shows us how important Jesus 
thought the church was. Now, some people today don't think the church is very important. Would you agree with that? A lot of even professed Christian people don't think the church is very important. Now, we know that the pagan culture around us has a potent anti-church allergy. They're not interested in the church. They say the church is a relic of a bygone era. It really serves no purpose. There's nothing more foolish than to gather with the saints, to sing hymns, to listen to a man pontificate from a desk, from a book that is outdated and outmoded. They say this is the most irrelevant thing that a person could do. We expect the world to say that about the church. We just didn't expect them to be as blatant and overt about it as they have been lately. We've learned in the last few years the church is non-essential. I have to tell you, I disagree with that wholeheartedly. The church is essential. The church is essential because people are not only bodies, they're souls as well. You remember what our Lord said? Man shall not live by bread alone. Now, bread feeds your body. You say, well, I need food. I need something. I need something to perpetuate physical health. I need physical sustenance. But there's more to people than their bodies. They're not just animals. Man shall not live by bread alone, but there's a spiritual component by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. You need food for your soul as well as food for your body. And that food for your soul comes from the word of God by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. That's why the church is essential because you say, well, the church serves no purpose. It's not really doing anything. It's feeding people's souls with the truth of heaven, with the truth of God. And in a world of deception and subterfuge and deceit and lies everywhere you turn, my friends, we need to hear the truth of God on a regular basis. The world says the church is not very important. Furthermore, there are many professing Christians that say the church isn't very important. Some of them have a theological reason. They're called dispensationalists. A dispensationalist is probably the best way to understand is to remember the Left Behind series a few years ago. The idea that uh, there's going to be a secret rapture and you might be in an airplane and suddenly the pilot is raptured to heaven and you're sitting in you know, row D, seat 14, and so 14D, and, uh, you know, and suddenly you, there's no pilot in the cockpit, and you say, it's, uh, you know, I'm, I was left behind. Well, the Bible teaches the, that there are two comings of Christ, not multiple comings, first of all. And when he comes again, it's not going to be secret. He's coming with the trumpet, the voice of the archangel and the trump of God with a shout, it sounds pretty public, doesn't it? And uh, he's not going to leave any of his children behind. But anyway, um, dispensationalism is the end times theology that teaches that there is a distinction to be made between national Israel and the church. And it basically says that Israel is God's special people. They're the chosen people of God and that God is in a covenant relationship forever with the nation of Israel. And the church 
was not really planned to be here. But when Jesus came, the Jews rejected him as their Messiah. And he, his life ended in tragedy. He's gone back to heaven, and one day he's coming back to try to do again what he failed to do the first time. And in the meantime, he set up the church as a sort of stopgap measure, an afterthought, an addendum. And perhaps the way that I worded that is offensive, and I don't mean it to be. I don't think it's too far off base from their position, but, uh, but I, I, I am saying that dispensationalism is the view of end times prophecy that says that the church wasn't really intended to be here. It's Israel that the Lord was interested in. And they would say that people like me who say that the, that the church that, that Israel, all the promises and prophecies have terminated in the coming of Christ. And they are true about his people, his church. Because I quote, I, I think of verses like Romans 2.29. He is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he's a Jew, which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the spirit. Not of the letter, but in the heart. I think of verses like... Um, Galatians 6, 16, and as many as walk according to the rule of the new creature, peace be upon them and mercy upon the Israel of God, the Israel of God. That is, the, I think of verses like Philippians 3, 3, we are the circumcision, the Jew, which worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. I think of verses like John chapter 1 when Jesus said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whose spirit there is no guile. Why would he even need to qualify it like that? If there isn't something more than just a natural descendant of Abraham, he's talking about a spiritual Jew. Galatians chapter 3 says that if you be Christ's, Christ, then are you Abraham's seed. And heirs according to the promise. Notice he didn't say if you're Abraham's seed, then you're Christ's. Salvation's not by race. It's by grace. If you be Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed. And heirs according to the promise. But the dispensationalists say the church isn't that important. They say there's a difference between the church and the kingdom. Notice in this passage though, you have... The word church mentioned in verse 18, this is in the red letters. Verse 19 is still in the red letters. You have the word kingdom mentioned. Back-to-back -back verses. I will build my church. I give unto you the keys of the kingdom. And may I suggest for consideration that the church is the visible expression of the kingdom of God in this world. It's the place where Christ is acknowledged as the king and the Lord. Where people have bowed the knee and said, I'm not going to live according to my own rules anymore. I'm not going to follow the crowd, follow the world. I'm going to submit myself to the authority of Jesus Christ. And I want to live for his glory. And thereby, I want to enjoy the benefits of his kingly reign right now in time. It's the kingdom of God. It's a microcosm of heaven. You say, well, what about, is there a difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God? No, Matthew is the only writer in the New Testament that uses the expression kingdom of heaven. And if you'll read Luke's version of the same events 
or episodes that Matthew's referencing, you'll find he often, where Matthew says kingdom of heaven, Luke says kingdom of God. And I say simply that the kingdom of heaven means that it's heaven's domain, not earth's kingdom. You know, you've heard of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, the kingdom of Iran, the kingdom of some government that has a monarchy in this world. I, I dare say, dear friends, that those are kingdoms of the earth, kingdoms of men, but the kingdom, heaven's kingdom, is a kingdom ruled over by Jesus Christ. And you say, well, where can I see it? I want to see that kingdom. You'll see it in the visibly expressed in the local church if it's a church that Jesus built. Upon this rock, I will build my church. So this passage demonstrates the importance that Jesus placed on the church. It's a passage that also offers rich encouragement to every pastor and believer who cares about the future of the church. I wonder if you're here tonight, my friend, and you say, Brother Goins, I'm worried about the church. Our numbers are dwindling. Interest, it's hard to keep interest up. It's, it's just there's so many distractions, so many pressures. Maybe you're a pastor here tonight, and you say, Brother Mike, I'm afraid that the church is, has seen its better day, that the best days are behind us. We have little to look forward to in the future. I want you to listen to the rich encouragement Jesus gives us in this wonderful promise upon this rock, I will build my church. And the tense is ongoing. Not I have built my church, but I will continue to build my church. And it speaks of Christ's personal investment in and interest in the church. Did you know the church is his special building project in this world? Now I like construction. I'm not very good at it, but I like it. I like watching an untamed plot of ground, the wilderness, cleared and suddenly you have a foundation and the structure begins to rise. The edifice, you know, grows to completion and before you know it, it's, it's, it's finished. I like building projects. It's tangible, you know, it's something tangible where you can say, here are the results of my labor. When you're a pastor, you don't see many tangible results from your labor. Every once in a while, you get somebody to baptize. Now, I get several folks to bury. That's about the most tangible I get. <laughs> I told our congregation one Sunday, I said, listen, I can do something besides preach funerals. Y'all ought to give me the chance. Somebody needs to join the church, and let me prove to you, I know how to baptize. I've done it before. Maybe a little rusty, but I know how to do it. You know, if you're a pastor here tonight and you're worried about the future of the church, isn't it encouraging to listen to Jesus pledge these words, I am personally invested in the church. This is my special project in the world. Somebody asked Brother Goins, are you saying that the Lord isn't interested in foreign conflicts and the affairs on a global stage, maybe governments fighting each other and economic situations and oh, he's interested, obviously. 
He's sovereign and nothing escapes his notice. He sees every sparrow that falls and every hair on your head is counted. He knows all about it and he takes notice of it. But I'll tell you the thing that he's most interested in is what's happening here tonight at Bethel Church. He's interested in his true followers. He's interested in his gospel. He's interested in his people, his confessing people who, like Peter, said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Lord's main concern in this world, and one for which he assumes personal responsibility, is the building of his church. You know, you think about that. The church is the one entity in this universe that has the creator as its CEO, as its leader and its head. You know where our headquarters is tonight? It's in heaven. Our head, Christ is the head of the church. Not the pastor, not the deacon board, not the oldest member or somebody who once served the church but has now gone home to be with the Lord and his reputation has reached legendary status. <laughs> it happens. I walked into a church one time to look at it and had a, I mean, a, it was bigger than 16 by 20. I bet that thing, that portrait of their former pastor was so big, I thought, man, I, would, I've, I, would, I wouldn't be in my right mind if I ever just accepted the care of this church. I, I, to know that this brother was looking over my shoulder, had those big eyes looking at me. It's not the pastor. It's not, no, the, the governor of Tennessee is not the head of the church, right? The president of the United States is not the head of the church. Jesus Christ, my beloved, is personally invested in what is going on here at Bethel Primitive Baptist Church. And I suggest that our concern, therefore, should not be so much with the growth of the church because we don't give the increase, he does. But our concern must be with the faithfulness of the church. Are we doing what he's called us to do? I wonder if we truly grasp what a great honor it is tonight to participate in a project that has the Lord of glory as its head and leader and that will never cease to exist. Indeed, my friends, what an encouraging passage. And then, this passage defines the parameters of the church. And I want to give these to you quickly as we try to be expeditious with the time. And there are four important lessons we can glean about the nature of the church. How do you define a church? Did you know the church has definition? The church, my friends, has parameters. If I were to take you into the woods and say, here is my garden, you'd say, well, where is it? All I see are trees and underbrush. But if I were to take you into the woods and walk you in and show you a half acre plot of ground that had been plowed and fenced off, it had boundaries, had borders, and said, here is my garden, you'd be able to see that it's something different than the surrounding environment, right? The church, my friends, is not a nebulous idea. It has definition. It can be measured. It can be gauged. 
a true church, a person may determine by the definition, the defining parameters of the church, a true church from a worldly church. And one of the first things that we learn from this passage is that Christ builds his church with people whose hearts have already been tendered and transformed by God's amazing grace. Do you know what the building material is in this church? Not bricks and mortar. It's people, living stones. Listen to this passage, would you? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. And ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house. And the verb tense is are being built up. It's something ongoing. And I know Christ built his church in the past tense as far as establishing it, setting it up. But we're talking about, my friends, the people, not the trappings of the doctrine and the practice. We're talking about the people that he changes and transforms by his grace and brings into the church. That's how he continues to build the church. The Lord builds his church with people who've been prepared off-site by his amazing grace. You remember when Solomon's temple was being erected? The stones were quarried off-site and then they were brought and put in place so that not the sound of a hammer or a chisel was heard on the building site. And I want to tell you, dear friends, that the Lord does his work in the soul apart from man's assistance. And Peter himself is a classic example of that in this passage. Listen to this. Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? That's Jesus' question. He's asking for the results of a public opinion poll. Now, you know, don't you, that public opinion polls are not very trustworthy? And this one was no exception. Some say that thou art John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist had disappeared from sight rather suddenly and abruptly. And it wasn't common news to the public what had happened to him. He was so popular. He was a very influential man for a good while. And suddenly he's gone. And some people said that Jesus was, well, this must be John the Baptist. He looks a little different, but this must be John the Baptist. So some say thou art John the Baptist. Some say thou art Elias or Elijah. And remember, the Old Testament ended with the prophecy that I will send you Elijah before that great and terrible day of the Lord. And... Some thought that Jesus might be Elijah. Others, Jeremiah. And I understand there was at least one school among the Jewish people that expected Jeremiah, who was a very strong and courageous prophet, they expected him to come back. Or one of the other prophets. The point is, when you ask people what do they think about Jesus, opinions are like noses. Everybody has one, and they're going to be all over the board. Some say this, and some say that. Who is Jesus? By the way, today in our culture, if you were to ask people who is Jesus Christ, you're going to get the same kind of results. Some, some will say that he's 
an enlightened one. That's what the Buddhist will tell you. He's very enlightened. He's achieved nirvana. And he's, um, he's very wise. Others will say he's an ascended master. The New Age movement will say that, the Hindus. Others will say that he's a prophet, like Moses and Muhammad. The Muslims claim that Jesus was a prophet. They at least give him that much, but they say he was not the greatest prophet. Muhammad's the greatest one, so Jesus is subordinate to Muhammad. And their view is that one day he's going to come again, Jesus, and he's going to come to promote Islam and to encourage everyone to hear and heed the word of Allah and his prophet Muhammad. They have a view of Jesus, the Muslims, the Hindus, the Buddhists, the historians. Now, did you know the evidence that Jesus of Nazareth actually lived is so compelling that there's no credible historian who would deny that fact? Today in universities, many are claiming that Jesus is a fabrication. But the evidence, again, I say the historical evidence is so compelling that they risk their own credibility, their own credentials, if they deny the historicity of Jesus of Nazareth. He's a historic figure. But who was he? The secularists say he's a great prophet, a leader like Gandhi or Confucius, a wise man, a sage, a guru. But Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Thou art the Messiah, the Messiah, Christos. Thou art the Christ. He confesses that Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and said, Simon, you are one of the most intelligent people I've ever met. Is that what he says? Simon, your analytical skills are amazing. Simon, you are an investigator par excellence. How did you figure this out? I want to tell you, dear friends, Jesus does not credit human reason or Peter's own personal genius. But he says, Peter, the only reason you know this is because you are blessed. You've been blessed by God. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto thee. You didn't get this from man. You weren't taught it by man. You weren't schooled in this knowledge. The only reason that you've come to this conclusion is because God has done a work in your heart and changed you. I believe, my friends, that Christ builds his church with people whose hearts have already been transformed by divine grace. Peter calls them lively stones, living stones. And a stone is not an animate object, is it? If you were to go outside and pick up a rock, it doesn't have any life in it. 
But I'll tell you, God has taken the stony heart that is in all of us by nature. And for those who are of his elect, who've been born again, quickened by his spirit, he's made you alive. And dear friends, may I say that when he does that, there is an immediate revelation that is given to the soul to where a person knows the Lord. Hebrews chapter 8, they shall not teach every man his neighbor, every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, male or female, from the very least to the very greatest. This is true across the board for all of God's children. They shall all know the Lord because they're taught of God in the heart. Peter, I dare say, was given a special immediate revelation that is without the use of means. He believed only because of the transforming and illuminating power of divine grace. And what I'm saying is belief is precedes, belief precedes, uh, the new birth precedes belief in Jesus Christ. Regeneration comes before faith. Belief is an evidence that a person's been born again. Peter makes his great confession. But the reason he made this confession is because God has taught Peter's heart and given him the ability to believe in Jesus Christ. And those are the people that the Lord, his children out here have been born again that he uses to build his church. And in his providence, he causes some of them to see and to understand. And then he calls upon them to confess him like Peter confesses him in this passage. What do people think about Jesus tonight? It's across the board. It's buried. But here's the real question. Whom say ye that I am? Let's get personal. You know, there are people who are constantly, put, they put their finger in the wind. What way is the wind blowing? Which way is it blowing? What do these people think? What do these And they're non-committal. They won't make a decision for themselves. He tells us here, my friends, that if you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to be in the church, you have to make a personal decision to confess Jesus. And if God has worked in your heart, you have that impulse already inside. And if you've come to understand that he is more than a man, he's the son of the living God, the eternal son of God, he's divine, he's God of very God, truly God, and truly man at the same time. That's a mystery. But my friends, if you have been brought to see that and to understand it, then the real question is, what do you think about whom say ye that he is tonight? What does the world say? Well, you're not, going to, you're not going to get their approval one way or the other. But I'll tell you what really matters is, do you believe? Has your heart been touched? Have you, is your hope in him? Then you ought to confess him, my beloved. The one who said, upon this rock of revelation, I will build my church. May God add his blessings tonight.